what does it mean to be a traitor? You've probably heard that word before. I think I've probably used examples like that before from the pulpit. What does it mean to be a traitor? Who are famous traitors in history? Well, if you think about Bible history, then um, Judas Iscariot is, of course, probably the principal idea of a traitor. Right? This man who is a close friend of Christ Jesus, who, for a vanishingly small sum, sells his savior, his teacher, his close friend of three years, into the hands of his enemies. Judas was a terrible traitor. Or we can think of stories from, from the history of nations, where some general, maybe Benedict Arnold, turns against his own people and gives away critical information to, the, to his enemy. We know what traitors are. They're those who turn against the cause of their own nation and behave in underhanded ways towards their own people. But what we have here in Nehemiah chapter 5 is indeed an example of treachery, of God's people undermining their own, undermining their commander, God himself, for selfish ends. And what we get to see today is how Nehemiah responds to that. Uh, and it's interesting as we go through this text that in chapter 4 we were examining attacks on God's people, not from within, but from without, right? We met this Sandalot guy who really hated the work that God's people were doing and sought to intimidate the Jews into halting their work. And now we turn to another attack. And what is surprising about this attack is that it is not an external attack. It is not an attack from God's enemies without pressing in against God's people. Rather, it is an attack on God's kingdom and God's work that comes from within so I hope as we watch Nehemiah respond to this attack that we will be instructed, particularly to see that we need to respond to internal attacks on God's people and his kingdom work through the effective enforcement of God's law and the positive example of what living like that looks like. We're just going to look at this in three ways. We'll look at the exploitation of God's people that was going on. We will look at Nehemiah's enforcement of God's law. And we'll look at Nehemiah's positive example um, with regard to loyalty to God's people. But first, the exploitation that we see. You know, we notice this, really, the, the first half of this text is all about that. But notice what you get there, um, starting in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people, and of their wives, against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, What are sons and our daughters? We are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Would have you notice that we have three groups here. Um, the, the groups come to Nehemiah. You've got to remember what's going on here. We are entering quickly into the days of harvest, of the olive harvest, and then following the olive and the grape harvest, the time for planting of grain. So for farmers, this is getting to be a time where they are very concerned about their fields back home. 
But what are they doing? Are they out there harvesting? No, day after day after day, they are there working on the walls. This project lasted a little over 50 days. If you are a farmer who is essentially doing subsistence farming, you are eating what you are growing, and if it doesn't grow, you don't eat. This time is an important time to you. And so there's this first group of people who says, hey, we are not working in the fields. We need to provide something for us to eat. And they appeal, it sounds as if they appeal either to their brothers around them or to Nehemiah, and say, we need to buy food so that we can eat. That's the first group. This first group doesn't have food right now, but they seem to have some amount of resources by which to go obtain food. Or they're asking Nehemiah, hey, can we have an allowance of food for those who work on the wall? That's our first group. They are the least insecure, you might say. Then we have the second group. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Why should you buy food for them when we've already gone into debt to buy food for ourselves? And oh, by the way, there was this famine, so it's not like we had a lot of resources to fall back upon. We are already in debt and already risking our own land to feed ourselves. How could this be fair? And then we have this last group. We already borrowed money to pay off the king's tax. And you've got to remember, we're talking about people who are under foreign occupation. Uh, they're under occupation from the Persian government. When we read from external sources, when they talk about the king's tax, this could be an exceedingly burdensome tax. We have historical sources from that period that suggest that taxation could be clearing 40%. If you are a subsistence farmer, that is a crushing tax burden. And they have already gone into debt to pay that tax. And now they're realizing they are hungry and they have no way to obtain food. And so they have borrowed on the threat of their children becoming slaves. They say, even some of our own children we have sold into slavery. You read this and you say, these poor people, they're starving and they have nowhere to turn. They are on the brink of poverty and destitution. And you know what you expect to hear at this moment? You expect to hear this story, right, of how awful those Persian overlords are, of how awful those exploitive Gentiles are. There's all these evil people making sure that God's people are impoverished so they can't do the work they need to do. But what do we discover? The ones who are oppressing God's people are not the Persians. It's not the Samaritans, the Samarians, it's not... It's not the Ammonites, it's not the nations surrounding God's people, it's not the Gentiles. But what is the issue? The issue is the powerful and wealthy and rich people of the Jews, their own brothers, are ensuring that their brethren end up in slavery because they're exploiting their brothers for selfish financial gain. What does Nehemiah say? You are exacting interest each against his brother. Despite the fact that God's law directly and pointedly says, you will not do so. If you see your brother in need, you will lend without interest. Indeed, you'll regard it as a gift if you have to. There was broad protections and this call, if you find yourself blessed by the Lord, you will not overlook the plight of your impoverished neighbor. And Nehemiah says, you are exacting interest. Not only that, but he notes that they are continuing to do it to the point that 
their brethren are selling their children into slavery with Gentiles, breaking up households, forcing covenant children into pagan households because they want to make a little extra money. I dwell on that because you have to realize how bad what's going on is here. That, that this is horrendously evil, what these people are doing to their brothers. And this is why I begin with this image of treachery. Because what these nobles are doing is they are calling themselves good Jews, in fact, leaders in God's house, as they are committing treachery against the Lord by exploiting and destroying their weaker brothers, by using them for financial gain, to the point that they become destitute. And we need to see this and recognize this first to see what a threat this is to the kingdom work that they are doing. Right? What's the work right now? The work is they got to get this wall built. They are under the reproach of the nations. They've started this huge project. This is the most important project for the glory of God's city in that generation. They've already been challenged. Oh, you'll never finish that wall. Tobiah, oh, Fox could knock your wall down. It would be a tragedy if they fail to finish this project, God's name would be shamed in the nation and God's people would never be taken seriously within that region, within the memory of that event. And yet, if the people are too destitute to continue to work, I mean, put yourself in your shoes. If you're selling your children into slavery, are you going to come work on the wall or are you going to go harvest the olives? You're going to harvest the olives. You have to. You don't have a choice. This these acts by these officials, these nobles, are threatening the ongoing work of God's kingdom and, in fact, threatening to tear it apart. The other thing I, I, want to, I want you to see is that this kind of treachery, this kind of exploitation, it happens, and it happens among God's people. And part of the reason this is recorded here and part of the reason that, Nehemiah, that this is given to us is indeed to point the finger at us and say we need to examine our own hearts and make sure that we don't fall into the sorts of traps, the sorts of sins that these men fell into. Uh, the way Nehemiah speaks um, near the end, he even says that um, he, he talks about not just them returning the interest, but even I myself returning the interest that we have taken. This practice seemed to become very common within that that uh, setting. These things happen. How do they happen in the modern church? Well, you know, we think of the examples that show up on TV, right? You know, there's a scandal from time to time. Here's this, the, the, this, this pastor of a large church, and they've just had this big capital campaign, and you find out that they raised a bunch of money, and oh, lo and behold, he's driving a, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollar luxury car and a mansion on the coast that's valued at multiple millions of dollars, and you go, whoa! If that's not exploitive, I don't know what is, right? Those are the ones that hit us in the face. Those are the ones that we, I would suggest, as Presbyterians, are fairly resistant against. Of course, what has become more common in our day is, is, is the leader in God's church who uses God's church for self-promotion. What's one of the real currencies in our, in our culture? It's attention. And pastoring gives you a chance to gain attention and notoriety out there because you're notable in here. And that also happens frequently 
within the larger evangelical church. And that's a temptation we must all be aware of. That that's a good way to make money, a good way to exploit God's people. But where I want to bring this in is what's the mentality that we have to avoid? The people in Nehemiah's day looked at God's people, looked at God's congregation, looked at the people that God called by name, and didn't see them as brothers and sisters, didn't see them as God's redeemed, precious people that he cherished and loved, but saw them as a means to an end. In that moment in time, the end was money, and the means was interest and loans and slavery. But it is very easy for us to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ the very same way. Maybe we don't want money from them. Maybe we want the affirmation they give us when they agree with us. We want, we want our children to make us feel good about ourselves by being the perfect kids. We want them to serve us. I feel that right, right? I'm the pastor. <laughs> What's the worst thing? You go, my kids, they have to behave or I could lose my job, right? And right there, I've got the same mentality. My kids exist for me to make a living. It's not as dramatic as that, but it's the same mentality. I bring these examples up because it's so easy to look at these nobles and say, you're terrible people, you shouldn't be that way. The truth is, anytime we look upon God's people, whether they're our family or whether they're this congregation, we're entering into the same sin these nobles entered into. I think the other thing to recognize is this problem started not because the nobles were exploiting God's people. This problem started because the nobles weren't doing what they should have been doing proactively to support the work going on there. I mean, the very tenor of God's word from the Pentateuch is, if God blesses you and makes you wealthy, you watch out for your poor brother, your poor sister. You care for the widow. You redeem your enslaved brother. You are proactive to support the work. Or you think about, I mean, what's the other, what are the other events that sort of parallel this sort of beautification, the work on God's kingdom that we see here? It's events like when they built the tabernacle. Moses says, hey, we're building the tabernacle. Make a contribution. And, and what, 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 what did God's people do? They gave and they gave and they gave and they gave until, they, until the workers say, stop them giving. There's too much here. You're, you're, you know, it's like this work site where they piled up mounds of excess material. There's so much there that they, they're dealing with material they're not building. God's people gave generously. Or you think of when the temple was built, that same experience of God's people coming in and giving to the work each as he had ability. There was no reason if these nobles were wealthy and self-centered. I mean, from Nehemiah's own testimony, there were clearly people in that, country, in that land who not only could support themselves and their own households, but could support large numbers of other people. And the first failure was with these people whom God had blessed, not proactively supporting the work of the wall. And you would expect these nobles who God had blessed with land and wealth and money and food and oil and wine to, to have the table laid out when the workers showed up to work. To be Boaz. Here, come, eat, lunch. Don't worry about it. Eat. You're serving God's purpose. We are here to support this. We see the glory that God is doing. But rather, we see them holding back and exploiting. And so the other way that we can fall into this mentality is when we are not when we are not proactively supporting God's work as he blesses us to do it. 
When we are not going, God has blessed me in these ways, whether it's financial, whether it's in gifting, when we say, but I will not give in the ways that God has commanded and enabled me to do so. And so we have to be sensitive to that. That God does call us to support his people and his work as he blesses us to make sure that his kingdom continues to press forward. But let's continue to the enforcement. What does Nehemiah do about this? Starting in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against these nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that, you may be, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Are you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house. And from his labor, who does not keep this promise? So he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. First, a broad point. You notice the, the, the movement of this text. We move from anger and outcry. I was, in, I was very angry when I heard their outcry. That's where we start. And where do we end? We end with the people praising the Lord and moving forward in obedience. The first thing I want you to see is what Nehemiah engages in is a form of church discipline, right? That's what we're seeing. Nehemiah, the leader of God's people, comes and confronts sin. He confronts those who are in wicked sin, seeking change. But what is the movement? I think this is something we just we always have to remind ourselves of because we hear church discipline and we think, oh, we're, you know, it's about casting people out of God's flock. It's about coming down hard on the offender. The overall movement, the goal of church discipline is to move from outcry in the church, flagrant, you know, sin going on unchecked, to go from that point to the point where there is repentance and there is praising the Lord and follow through in obedience. That is the movement, that is the direction that church discipline is intended to go. It is not something that we should fear, but something we should desire. We should desire God to confront us in our sin, to say, through his people, to say, hey, you're in this sin. It's hurting you. It's hurting God's people. You need to stop. And for him to so change us that we go, I repent. I put that behind me. And I praise the Lord. And you praise the Lord. And we move forward in obedience. That, this lays out for us, this is what we should be looking for in discipline. But then I want you to see, how does Nehemiah argue with these nobles? Um, you know, you find it interesting, he's the governor. He probably could have just said, well, I'm the governor, so I'm telling you to stop. And if you don't stop, I'll just get Artaxerxes involved for disobeying me. Well, he doesn't do that. He deals with them as a spiritual leader, and, and he argues with them. What, what is the arguments? Well, the first thing he does is he, is he calls them out. He calls them out in public. 
I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brothers. And I held a great assembly against them. This sounds like to me, he, he kind of told these nobles, here's what's coming, maybe. But he gets them up in front of the congregation and says, here's the congregation looking at these nobles, and Nehemiah seems to be calling them out in public. Here's what you are doing. In part, he's putting pressure on them. He's dealing with their public sin, publicly. But then what does he say? First, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. He confronts this, and he's very specific. Here is exactly the thing that you are doing wrong. And if I had a citation in front of you, I'd go back to Leviticus and read it for you. But repeatedly in God's word, God says, you will not exact interest against your brother. You will not loan an interest. You will loan and only want what was given back. Indeed, God presses his people over and over and over into generosity with their brother or sister. So he lays out the law. Then he shows them how they are undermining how they are undermining the very work they're seeking to do. We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Can you imagine Nehemiah's experience? You know, I, it sounds like he goes around and he, he keeps his ear to the wind or he finds out when, when slaves are being offered for sale. Um, and he goes around, he's looking for Jewish people who are in slavery. And when he finds them, he says, you know, he's like turns to his accountant, hey, do we got money for this one? And if the accountant says yes, he's like, we're buying it. He's free. Let's go. Can you imagine his experience like running down and trying to find out who's enslaved the Jewish people and seeing the same guy twice or seeing the same young woman twice? Didn't I free you like two months ago? Why are you back here? He said, that's what you all are doing. You're continuing to bear, you're continuing to press down on so that I free this poor son or daughter of your brethren. They go back home, and shortly thereafter they're sold back in slavery. Come on, let's just you know, let's just skip this process. Why don't you come and just ask me for money? It would be cheaper, faster, and easier. They are under he says, you're undermining God's work. You're undermining what I am striving to do in setting God's people free. So he shows them, he exposes how they are working against God. Then I think he gets to the heart of that. The thing that you are doing is not good. Are you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? On the one hand, you don't fear God. And when we think about the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament... It's really kind of the idea that runs in parallel with trust in the Lord in the New Testament. You don't look upon God and see him as big, as powerful as your God. You look upon him as someone to take advantage of, someone who has left you out in the wind, someone you can't trust, and someone you must exploit to get to your ends. There's no respect for God in your eyes, and there's no trust for God in your eyes. What is their attitude? They look upon the world as if honor and wealth and money and security are this little pie that they have to fight for. And if I as a noble don't get my full set of the pie, if I don't get every last penny out of my Jewish brother, then I'm not getting enough. I'm not going to be safe. I'm not going to be secure. What does God say? He says, give. Think about the, the, the whole idea of the year of Jubilee. 
You're going to set them free without cost. They're going to go free. You're going to give. Why? Because I, the Lord, gave you the land, and I, the Lord, will care for you in the land. I will give you all you need. When we look upon other believers and seek to gain from them, to exploit them to our selfish ends, we are betraying a, a central lack of trust in the Lord. As if the Lord would hold back from you what you need to follow him. As if he doesn't care enough for you to give you what you need. We need to think about that. I think we need to say that. I have to think about it in terms of my family. I want them to serve me. I want them to make me feel good. I want my children to make me feel like I'm a good father. I want my wife to rejoice in me, make me feel like a great husband. And I suspect some of you have those same struggles, those same sins within you. We have to call it what it is. It is looking upon the Lord and saying, Lord, you are stingy, so I have to gain it for myself. It is sin. Christ died for you. God will not hold back from you what you need. Now, what I think I need and what he thinks I need may not match. That's a struggle, right? But we got to trust him. Christ died for you. He will care for you. And then the second part, Nehemiah says, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? When we take advantage of God's people to serve our ends, we give the nations all sorts of room to say, look, you're just like us. In fact, you're worse than us. You know, we at least, we at least don't, don't, don't exploit our family members. We go after people we don't know. The conduct, the way that we treat each other in this congregation, the way we treat other Christians out there matters greatly because the world is watching. And we have to watch out for each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, because if we do not, the world will take every opportunity to slander Christ for it. And so Nehemiah exposes their behavior. But then, notice what he says next. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. So Nehemiah takes the lead. He says, I've been doing it too. I've been lending an interest. I will stop. And let us all restore what has been taken. And the beauty of this is that Nehemiah gives them a clear way out. This is something I have to work on as a parent, right? It's, it's really easy to come tell your kids, stop, 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 stop. And then not say, and here's how you get out. Here, here's how to go the right way. And as leaders, if you ever find yourself in a leading capacity, that's an important principle. A Christian leader doesn't just push back. He says, let me show you how to get back on the path. Let me show you the way out. And Nehemiah says, let me show you the way out. Notice it's a costly way. Everything that you took from them, all of that stuff that's not yours, you got to give it back, like right now at harvest time, some of you are probably counting on that income to, you know, expand your house or meet your debts or whatever. You have to give it back right now. And I will take the lead in doing it. It is costly, costly repentance. And Nehemiah knows this. 
And so he holds their feet to the fire. He calls the priest up. And you're going to take an oath on the Lord's name to make sure that you do it. And if that's not enough, I'm going to make this prophetic sign. He shakes out his garment and says, if you don't keep your oath, may God shake you out of his work, and out of his temple, out of his plans. And not only that, may you be shaken out and emptied. Essentially, if you don't keep your promise, and if you don't watch out for your brothers, may you become as they are destitute. May you be, in fact, more destitute, because at least God sees them as his people. May God cast you out of his, of his plans, out of his work, out of his blessing, so that you are impoverished like your brothers have become under your hand. And so he does use threats to, to bring this forward. He uses God's law very effectively. Here, the warning to us is this. And it's hard to find the right way to say this, but God attaches their use of their earthly blessing to how, he, how they are viewed. If, Nehemiah is laying out two paths. He says, if you obey, if you return, if you watch out for your brother, you will continue in the work. You will continue as God's people. You will continue to receive that blessing. If you refuse, if you continue in this exploitative behavior, if you continue to refuse to support my work, support the Lord's work here, you will be cast out of God's people and you will find yourself destitute. You will find yourself impoverished. And I don't want this to come across as it comes across so often that it's give your tithe and go get wealthy. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying if we're finding ourselves in a situation that we are shaken and emptied, one of the questions, questions that we need to ask is, have I been faithful to the leadership and calling and work and blessing in God's kingdom that God has called me to be? Our book of worship says we are to give in proportion to the way God blesses us. And usually we talk about money, but it's bigger than that. As God blesses us, we should be seeking to bless God's people with it. And sometimes the way God corrects us when we have fallen from that mentality is to take away what he gives us. Not always, but that's a question we need to ask. But lastly, we see Nehemiah's example. Notice what Nehemiah does. He notes that he was governor for 12 years. In that time, neither I nor our brother ate the allowance of the food. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so. I also persevered in the work on this wall. We acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. So Nehemiah says, is first, for twelve years, I didn't eat the food allowance of the governor, right? I had every right by Persian law to tell people, you will give me an allowance, 40 shekels of silver, to feed my household. Previously, the governors had done this. In fact, the governors hadn't just done this, but the governors had empowered their servants to exact even more taxes upon this people. Nehemiah says, I didn't do that because I feared the Lord. 
I did not take the tax that was mine. Okay. On top of that, I focused and persevered in the work on the wall. What he means by that is, it wasn't like I showed up and sat down and got people started on this wall and all my servants were away working the land or acquiring possessions and, and building myself a house in the land. Me and my household, we were engaged with the work of the wall just like everyone else. Then he notes what this is costing him. He's got 150 people at his table. Can you imagine feeding 150 people at your own unreimbursed expense for 12 years? I mean, he tells us how much it cost him. I was killing an ox every day. I'm not sure what the going rate for ground beef is right now, but if I had to buy an ox every day to feed you all, I'd be broke really fast. Nehemiah is going to great personal expense by giving up these food rations, by giving up the power he has to tax. Why? Because the service was too heavy on his people. Get this. Nehemiah enters leadership. He is the most important civil ruler in that town. If you were a Jew, Nehemiah was it. He was your governor. He was your contact with Artaxerxes. What is his mentality about leadership? His mentality is not, I will come lead this people to gain honor for myself, to get rich, to get a nice house. Before you say, well, nobody does that. That's exactly what the previous governors were doing. He tells us as much. Nehemiah says, my mentality was to come and to glorify God and to give to the people. God blessed me so that I could feed my household without feed. When I say household, Nehemiah's household was his staff, his court. It was a big group of people. They were the ones doing the work of governing. If God has blessed me so I can feed them without taxing, therefore I will do it. I have a household that can work on this wall. We're going to get busy with the work on the wall. I've got a little extra on the side. I see that Jewish brother in slavery. He's bought and set free. Nehemiah's mentality about leadership was not to receive from others, whether it was honor or glory or wealth or power or notoriety, but to give to God's people that they might prosper. There's two things I want you to capture from that. First, in America we won't say it, but we think it. Because man his sin thinks it. Being a leader over people, the world assumes happens so that we might gain something. Glory, notoriety, money, it depends on who you are and what you value. But that's what we understand leadership to be in America, everywhere else in our sin. That is not what God understands leadership to be. If you are called to a leadership role, whether it's as a father, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the business world, wherever it goes, God has put you in power to bless those that you are in leadership over. That's why he gave people like King David. And we who lead need to have that mentality, starting in our own households and growing out from there. I exist in this position to give as much as I can as God has blessed me to give. And you know how I know that's true? Because we have the example of the leader. We have the example of the king of the nations. We have the example of Christ Jesus himself, who 
had every right to simply show up on earth and demand glory, gain for himself a throne, impose his rule upon us, take from us whatever he wanted because we are the sinful rebels and he is the righteous king. And he chose not to do that. But he chose to be humiliated. He chose to be trodden under. He chose to be criticized. He chose to be reviled. He chose the way of pain and sacrifice. Do you know why he chose that? Because he could have gained glory for himself just by showing up and saying, I'm the king of kings with his angels. And that would have been the end of the statement. He chose to do it to give life to you. He chose death to give life to you. On the one hand, that shapes what we think of ourselves as leaders. On the other hand, it gives us the confidence to live the life God has called us to. In our sin, we live our lives with fists clenched, trying to hang on to this world as if it depends upon us to make it. As if God is not going to care for us. We are selfish. We are bent anyways. One of the things the gospel changes is because we change our relationship to the Lord, we realize, we learn, God has given me life and life overflowing. And everything that that means. So I can afford to die to myself day by day by day. And that's the hard thing. You know, it's always kind of interesting you hear that phrase, well, I would die for my wife. Well, of course you would, because you're a man, and you're full of hormones that make you ready to fight. What's much harder for a man is to wake up in the morning and die to himself or his wife day by day by day. Harder to die to himself or his children day by day by day. What do I mean by that? To give up what I want, what my body says I need, so they can experience greater life. And yet the way Christ changes us is by so filling us that we are confident that I can afford that pain. Because look how Nehemiah ends. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. The pagans, those outside of Christ, they only have what is in this life. If they give something away and they don't get paid back for it, that's a loss. They're never getting it back. And don't think of this just in terms of material. If they gave away a kind word, if they give away being reviled by someone else so they can show love, all these things we can give away. If they don't get paid back for it, that's their loss. But the Lord looks upon us and he remembers the things we do out of love for his people. Christ literally says that in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Which means that as we give, we can give knowing there is no loss. You know, oftentimes, life in this world, giving to others, is to experience loss. You give and you invest in this person, hoping they will come to Christ. And you give for years, you pray for years, and you never see, any, see a return on that. You never see them confess Christ. Was that lost? No, but God looks and he remembers. Or you, you love someone deeply, you invest in them so much, you're trying to help them get out of this hole they're in. And you invest for years, and they just don't change. 
and continue to putter along, just barely making it by as it were? Is what you invested in them lost? But no, Christ sees and remembers. And so the last thing I want you to see here is that because Christ has saved you, because God promises to fill you, he enables us to give to each other as he has given to us. And that our mentality in this life needs to be, I am looking for opportunities to give to other people. I'm looking for opportunities to take what I have and give it to someone else. And of course, we work in spheres. We work by giving to those in our family and those in our church community, those of our near neighbors. But we're always looking, what has Christ given me in this situation that I can give to someone else? Because Christ has given me so, so much. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for Nehemiah's example. I thank you for how he points us to Christ. How Christ gave everything so he might bless us. I pray that you would teach us to think that way, to live that way. Lord, our sin is so much that we just don't trust you to give us what we need when we need it. And Lord, our sin is so much that we cling to honor and respect and attention when we don't need to. I pray that you would reveal to each of us where we are mistreating your people for our selfish ends. Lord, this is one of those sins that is so hard for us to see it in ourselves, so I pray you would reveal it either by the working of your spirit directly, by the working of Nehemiah's in our life, that you would soften our hearts so we would not take advantage of your people, but that we might be Nehemiah's in their lives, giving from what you have given us to them. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.